um, a book that I heartily recommend. Uh, and I wonder whether you, when you look at the donkey, have you noticed that indelible mark on the back? And when I see it, it sort of gives me goosebumps that, to see that there's a cross marked on the back of a donkey. Now, all four gospel writers mention this, and, but two of them also mentioned that this was no ordinary donkey. This was a colt. It was a young male donkey. And two of the gospel writers said that it had never been ridden before, which I think is probably a challenge. Now, I'm no horseman, um, but I understand that horses and donkeys are very different to train. Uh, maybe somebody could point that out to me later on. But you see, horses have evolved. They've got speed, and their natural mechanism for survival is to leg it. They can run. So I wonder if their motto is, he who hesitates is lost. However, the donkey is more intelligent. And what they tend to do when, when they're in a, a situation of danger is they will stop and take stock and work out what to do before they do it. And I think that's given them the undeserved reputation of being stubborn. But I don't think so. But I... <laughs> But I think maybe their motto ought to be, look before you leap. So such is the calming presence of Jesus, though, that this creature naturally allowed the creator to ride him. But I think what makes me most amazed about this story on Palm Sunday is the crowds. And I think I can see in this passage like three distinct types of crowd that, that were there that day. Now, first of all, you've got the crowd that travelled with Jesus. There's this subgroup of Passover pilgrims that have been with him recently and seen what he'd done. In fact, he's just come from raising Lazarus from the dead. So there must have been such an excitement with that crowd. I mean, what's he going to do next? He's coming to Jerusalem now for Passover. So their expectations would be quite high. Maybe they ran on ahead to actually see the moment when he entered the city. The next group, which puzzles me a little bit, the gospel writer referred to them as the whole city in verse 10. And despite the fact that Jesus came regularly to Jerusalem, in fact, if you go back through the Gospels, you see that he would be a very obedient Jew coming three times a year. And also in Luke's Gospel, we see that his parents went to Jerusalem every year. They were regular attenders. And we know that he would have gone from at least the age of 12 with them. So why did they not know who he was? Why did they say, who is this man? They'd have had plenty of opportunity to see him, but maybe they weren't looking. So the local residents weren't paying much attention and asked, who is he, in verse 12. 
But he had already caused quite a stir amongst the religious ruling classes. And uh, they had obviously been confronted by Jesus and they'd made up their minds already about him. So what would they, the crowds have said, when the city said, who is he? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. Or perhaps they might have said, Joseph, uh, Jesus ben Joseph. Or I might hesitate to say, perhaps he should be called Yeshua ben Yahweh. Now there are probably those in the crowd that might be there thinking, maybe I'll get healed today, or maybe I'll get touched, maybe I'll get blessed. And they would not want to miss that opportunity. But there also may be people there just out of curiosity. And don't you notice that we often see people drawn just out of curiosity. Sometimes popularity means that we're drawn for the wrong reasons. So the religious leaders had made up their mind and come to a different conclusion to some of the people that were there. They were reacting to two distinct things, what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. Now I'm baffled that they put their heads in the sand over some of the miracles. In fact, there are some miracles that Jesus did that they had naturally put aside to be miracles that they were expecting the Messiah to do. But you'll be glad to know it's uh, probably a a sermon for another day to go through all of those. And uh, I don't know whether you've got roast potatoes on or anything, but I'll, I'll move on. Now, I don't know whether or not the crowds were looking at the prophecies like were in Zechariah and were making their acclamations there. But, I mean, they were saying, Hosanna. And what interests me is the fact that they said, Son of David. Now, I doubt if they'd gone online to something like Wikipedia or Ancestry.com and worked out that Jesus was a direct descendant of King David and that the prophecies say that there would be an eternal divinic line. I'm just amazed that they picked up that phrase. They also said Hosanna, which is, means save or save us, uh, which is also a form of Jesus' name. And this refrain of Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, which is one of the psalms that would normally be sung during these festivals. And it may well be one of the psalms that they sang after their Passover meal. So it's also interesting, well, at least to me, about the the other festival, Sukkot, which is tabernacles. And I think I talked about tabernacles a couple of years ago. Um, Don't worry, I won't go into it again. But uh, one of the things that uh, the Jews do at tabernacles is wave palms. Which, is, which they call the lulav. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, ritual associated with that. But I find it strange that, that they did this at a Passover festival. Now, what I said in, in, in my talk about tabernacles is that's one 
festival that I particularly feel is ripe for the return of Jesus. It has got so much symbology about it. And I wonder if these people were trying to force the issue here and actually start to mix the two together, anticipating that this might be time for their Messiah to appear. It's uh, interesting to read the Gospels and see how Jesus has got such a command of knowing what to do at the right time. But going back to the Jewish leaders, I think they were possibly a little jealous of what was going on. Jesus pointed out that some of them loved to have the most important places in synagogues and have places of honour and to be invited to banquets and sit at the right place and be called rabbi. They called all the shots and it was their religion. They didn't really want somebody to upset what they'd already got. Their popularity was at stake here. But I don't think that uh, giving up of popularity means nurturing being unpopular. But handling popularity in a God-given way calls for specific qualities. I've noticed these days that someone's popularity is, uh, is judged... Oh, there's a little laugh. I keep forgetting to press this thing. As I... Popularity today is, is given by how many followers you've got, but not people that follow you, but people that follow you on social media. You'd have to explain it to me because I don't really do that. I was quite surprised at who's the most popular, what is it, Twitter person, because I thought it would be somebody I'd never heard of. And it's Barack Obama at the moment, which is strange. All the others are like, well, I don't know. <laughs> You'd have to look it up. Um, come and tell me. And uh, so... We, we, it, I think it's a sad example of how the world sees popularity. I think uh, one of the telling passages that we find in John chapter 12 is many even amongst the leaders believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. It seems to me that that passage suggests that everyone that desires to be popular might have to make a choice between the approval of others and the approval of God. And if that's not enough, Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or, I am, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So according to this verse, we cannot consistently please both God and the world. When we choose to allow God to define our value rather than other people, then we free ourselves to follow Jesus in the way I think he intends us to do. 
Some people might find that popularity is thrust upon them as a result of focusing on serving the Lord. And I think that's fine. But I think that that requires a quality where you need to be very careful that pride doesn't creep in and cause a distraction. And you have to watch out that popularity can be fleeting. Can you remember people like Mike Yarwood that was always on the telly or, or Noel Edmonds? Or even Simon D. Does anybody remember Simon? <laughs> yeah. So, they, be very careful who you follow, though. They might take you in the wrong direction. So maybe there's a few points to ponder this week in our metaphorical journey, pilgrimage towards Easter. Do we place acceptance from God as a higher reward than acceptance from others? Have you got your metaphorical palms ready for Jesus' return to take up royal residence in the new Jerusalem? And finally, returning to the first Palm Sunday, I think it was Harold Wilson that said, a week is a long time in politics. And I think you'll find that uh, this week, the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Friday, which is not even a week, we see the crowds that change from saying Hosanna to crucify him. So he went from conquering king to convicted criminal. That first Palm Sunday, we see Jesus greeted into the holy city by a fickle crowd who for four and a half days later would ask for his death. Such was transient popularity in those days. But we wait patiently for the return of our king. And I go back now to Psalm 24, starting at verse 7. Lift up, you head, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. But Jerusalem is a city that's known lots of invaders and people come in. So it's not that easy to get through those gates. So they ask again, lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this? Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Let us pray. Dear Lord, help us to open the gates of our hearts and let the King of glory come in. We cry, Hosanna, save us from the temptation and motivation to please people. Help us to be holy as you are holy and set us apart for your service even when this means not being popular in the eyes of the world. We ask this in your name.